0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, This series of podcasts, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to do so by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's study, we're going to look at the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark and Jesus' parable of the sower. And I believe this might be one of the most important sections, not only in the Gospel of Mark, but in the entire New Testament. I really think that if we understand this particular parable and how it relates to the church today, as well as the church back at the time of the biblical text, uh, I think we're going to come to a great understanding of what's going on and why things are happening the way they're happening. Now, there tends to be two problems uh, that we take when understanding this particular parable. First is that we we tend to read it through a modernist, uh, consumerist mindset. It's about me and it's about my salvation and 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 being good as uh, and being a good soul is viewed in terms of uh, doing good things and not doing bad things. And and the second problem is that we often divorce it from the its context in the Gospel of Mark, both the context of what happened prior to it, especially the chapter break beginning in four one, kind of tells us to to kind of stop at the end of three and and pick up at the beginning of 4 and not make the connection between the two chapters, but as well as what happens after this particular parable. Now we're going to note that the context for this particular parable, the parable of the sower, uh, comes uh, from Isaiah chapter 55, uh, verses 10 and 11. And it says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word which uh, be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I had sent it. The seed then that the sower sows is indeed the word of God, as Jesus is going to tell us. The parable begins in verse 3. Listen to this, Jesus said, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Another seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. After the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Another seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seeds fell in the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The parable begins and ends in verse 3 and 9 with the same Greek word. It's a command. It's an imperative. The New American Standard translates, listen to this. It's one word, akouo in the Greek. Uh, Listen to this. And then in verse 9, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, This serves to to frame uh, the parable. It is often an an ancient author's way of telling us what the beginning and the ending of a particular section was. The parable tells us the farmer goes out and sows seed. And the seed, of course, is the word of God. Jesus tells us in verse 14, the sower sows the word. The seed then falls on different soils. Uh, One soil is the roadside. Uh, Another soil is a a soil that had uh, stones and rocky ground. Another soil uh, had thorns. And then the fourth soil is the good soil. But the emphasis here is none of the types of soil. The emphasis is upon what they did with the Word of God. Uh, The point being is that there's four types of people who will hear the Word of God. The first type is the people who hear it but don't even let it sink in. It has no depth at all. It's the roadside. Uh, The birds come and snatch it away. Jesus tells us in verse 15, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear it, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So, these people don't listen to the word at all, don't sink in, have no pretense or even appearance of being Christian or receiving Jesus, they don't don't follow Jesus at all, they're not one of his disciples, they're not one of the crowds, they are rejecting Jesus through and through. And we'll come back to this group later. The second soil is the seed that was sown among the rocky places. Who, verse 16, says, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but they are only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. This is the group that was uh, in in it for Jesus, and, and they, they loved the message, but they didn't realize that it meant tri- tri- uh, tribulations and sufferings and persecution. Once they begin to see all that happening, they fall away. The third soil uh, is seed that was thrown amongst the, the thorns. Verse 18 says, These are the ones who heard the word, of heard the word, and the worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things, and enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. They also are ones who hear the word of Jesus, they follow him, they're part of the crowds, but once they realize that Jesus is demanding that they take up their crosses and sell their farms and sell their land and give all the possessions to the poor, that they're out. That they, they, they didn't realize that the commitment to follow Jesus included getting rid of the wealth and the desires and so it chokes away the word and it's unfruitful the final soil however is the soil that was sown the seed that was sown on the good soil they hear the word verse 20, 20 says and they accept it and it bears fruit 30 60 and 100fold now it's important to recognize that 3 out of the 4 soils hear the word of god with joy but 2 out of those 4 out of the 4 will fall away of course one of them won't even receive it with joy at all the seed on the rocky soil then again represents those who fell away because of a time of trials or persecution. Uh, the seed on the uh, uh, amongst the thorns, of course, they fell away because they want to pursue riches and the pleasures of life and uh, and all that it encouraged. But the fourth soil is the good soil and it produces fruit. Now it's important to note, however, that the good soil doesn't mean that it has no stones or thorns. What makes the good soil good is that they had a deep root so that the stones or the testing and uh, uh, and tribulation and persecution doesn't cause it to wither away. And they also were not choked off by the thorns and the worries of life, the riches and, and the pleasures. Even the good soil has stones. Jesus, in fact, promised that there will be persecution and suffering for God's people. And even the good soil has thorns. They are pressured and tempted by wealth and power and possession. But those in the good soul, they produce fruit anyways, despite the stones and despite the rocks. Now the parable ultimately then is about God's desire to establish his kingdom. The point of it is he's going to sow the seed out to all. all. Everyone's going to get the opportunity to hear it. Three of the soils, however, produce no fruit. The fourth one not only bears fruit, but as the parable in verses 30 through through 32 tell us, it's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it's sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Now, in the middle of this particular passage, Jesus has the parable, of course, in verses 3 through 9, and then the explanation as to what the parable means in verses 14 through 20. In the middle of this, the disciples asked Jesus, verse 10. uh, His followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. Verse 13, he goes on to say, Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand any of the parables? So his explanation as to why he speaks in parables is given to his disciples. And the answer is, because to you has been given the mystery. It's a gift from God. It's not something attainable by by human standards. Jesus himself is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. And this can only be known by faith. Those who don't want to know, those who don't want to understand, won't ask. And because they won't ask, they won't be told. Ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. Now, the religious leaders are probably the Pharisees themselves, are probably represented by the first soil, the the roadside, where the birds come and snatch it up and it doesn't sink in, it doesn't bear any fruit at all, no plant, no nothing, no reception of the word at all. Now, it's very important, as I said earlier, to remember that this parable cannot be detached from its context going back to chapter 3. In chapter three, the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of being possessed by the devil and being in cahoots with the devil. Well, we know how you do these things, Jesus. Uh, uh, you, you you cast out demons by the by the ruler of demons. Jesus responds to them and says, "How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand." Instead, he says, "I actually have had to enter the strong man's house and in order to and bind him in order to plunder his property." Jesus' point was, I'm not actually working with the devil, I'm working against the devil. I've entered the devil's house and I had to bind him in order to do the miracles that I'm doing and, and cast demons out, preach the gospel, and open the eyes of those who are blind. Now, his response further goes on in this parable to, to explain, in all reality, you are the ones who are deceived by the devil. Think about it. That the Pharisees and religious leaders have accused Jesus of being in, in accord with the devil And his response is, actually, it's you who are in accord with the devil. But remember, they don't understand the parable. If they understood the parable, they probably would have had Jesus killed immediately, understanding exactly what he was saying, that, what, we're influenced by the devil? Not at all. Now, Jesus goes on to say that the reason why he explains these things in parables is because it's been given to you the mystery of the kingdom. To those who are outside, they get everything in in parables. Now, note again then that Jesus is redefining who the insiders and outsiders are. At the end of chapter 3, he said, My my brother and my mother are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. That person is my brother and my sister and my mother. What's very significant about that statement is that Jesus has redefined family. Now, you have to understand, family is a, a central pillar of the Jewish world, of the Old Testament people. We are sons of Abraham. We are the called ones, the chosen ones, the beloved ones of God. We are on the inside, and everybody else is on the outside. Now, as we've mentioned before, the Israelites had kind of grown to conclude that those on the outside were the enemies. They were the lost, they were the the enemies of of God's people, and it makes sense. After all, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, Babylonia and Persia and Greece and Rome have always persecuted the the people of God. So we're on the in, and they're on the out. And to be on the in, you have to be a descendant of Abraham. Now, if you recall John the Baptist's statement in in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, he says to to the religious leaders, don't say to me that we have Abraham as our father, because God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. You can begin to see, even in the preaching of John the Baptist, that family and lineage wasn't as significant as it was in the Jewish world of the Old Testament time. And now Jesus goes on to say, no, actually, family is being defined by whoever does the will of my father. Now, he goes even further, By saying, those on the outside, they get everything in parables. The Pharisees and religious leaders, those who don't want to listen to Jesus, those who don't ask, those who don't seek, they're on the outside. The insiders are those who come to Jesus to find out what does this parable mean. Verse 33 says that with many such parables, he was speaking them the word of God as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Those who want to know or those are on the inside, and they'll come and ask, and I'll, and I'll explain to them what's going on. Now, another important element of this parable is, fa- is the fact that it's actually an apocalyptic parable. and Many of the parables of Jesus, and even some of the teachings of the New Testament, is apocalyptic in its nature. The catchphrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, is a key indication that what I have told you is kind of coded, uh, coded or cryptic. It, 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 it means something deeper than what you see in the surface. Now, people kind of get all kind of uh, frazzled a little bit by the idea of apocalyptic language. But apocalyptic language is basically language that God's going to use or Jesus is going to use, the scripture uses, in order to describe something of great significance. The inbreaking of God in human history is something that can only be described with uh, the idea of cosmic upheaval language. But as far as the parables are concerned, it's not so much this cosmic upheaval language as much as it's this mysterious language. The mysteriousness of something that's being revealed in Jesus, but is unknown without faith and trust in Jesus. The phrase, He who has ears to hear, let him hear, is found in the book of Revelation. Each of the seven letters of, the, of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 say, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's this apocalyptic catchphrase that tells us that Jesus is giving us something of significance, of cosmic significance, the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And this message, of course, uh, could only be understood by those who have ears to hear. Now, the question becomes, well, how do we identify what the good soil is? Uh, The good soil is compared to the other soils. You know, uh, We know the other soils are bad because they kind of gave in to persecution and tribulation, and they walked away from the faith, or they gave in to uh, um, money and wealth and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, and they walked away from the faith. So the good soil must be those who, who hold on to the faith. Those who are good people, they, they obey God's laws and God's rules. And they don't lie, cheat, or steal, and they, they do the good things, and they don't do the bad things. But as I said at the beginning, this is another mistake that we make. We tend to read uh, this parable and much of the scriptures from our own individualistic and consumerist mindset. What's important to note uh, is that the parable doesn't really end, or this section of the Gospel of Mark doesn't really end in verse 20. I said earlier that another element of understanding this particular parable is that we can't separate it from its context. Both the context of what happened before, the religious leaders saying Jesus is possessed by the devil, and Jesus' answer is no, you're actually the ones that have been influenced by the devil. That's why you can't even hear the word. But as well, what happens afterwards? In verse twenty one, Jesus says, A lamp is not brought to be put under a bed a peck measure, is it? Or under a bed. It is not brought to be put on uh, is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it should come to light. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And you shall be give, and more shall be given you besides. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. Whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Now we note again that the repetition of that catchphrase, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear, connects this particular passage or the parable of the lamp that is brought, not to be hidden but to be put on a lampstand, with the parable of the sower uh, uh, and the soils. Uh, Furthermore, the repetition of ears in verse 24, take care what you listen to, reminds us, of course, of verse 3, listen to this. So the language is continuing on, this language of hearing and this language of listening. The point of the passage is nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Now, the translations kind of often do us a disservice. Lamps themselves, by their very nature, cannot come, they must be brought. And so the idea of a lamp being brought uh, not to be put under a peck measure or under a bed, but to be brought and put on a lampstand, makes sense. But the Greek text actually says the lamp is coming. We know from Scripture that the lamp is actually Jesus. He's the light of the world. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as a lamp in 2 Samuel 22-29. The Messiah is referred to as a lamp in 2 Kings 8:19 and Psalm 132:17. And the Torah, the Scriptures, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, Psalm 119-105. The lamp here refers to Jesus himself. The answer is, the lamp is coming, not to be put under a peck measure or under bed, but to be put on a lampstand. See, what defines the good soil is whether they apply the word of God. More specifically, applying the word of God means to make Christ known. To take the light of the world, to appropriate it to our lives, and then to let others see the light of the gospel. Now we have to understand that as soon as we begin to bear witness to Jesus, what's going to happen? Economic consequences are going to happen. People might lose their jobs. People might be uh, Their businesses might not be frequented. and they're, they're going to have economic strife, and that, of course, is the thorns. Those who don't want to go through the economic strife are going to fall away from Jesus because the thorns choke it away. Furthermore, if you're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, then suffering and persecution is going to come. As Jesus himself said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. So the stones that come about that cause those who don't have deep roots to to, to wither away and to fall away. The good soil is the one who doesn't hide the light. The good soil is the one who takes the lamp and puts it on, on the lampstand so that it can shine to all who are around, even though that often means economic, financial hardships, as well as maybe even persecution and suffering. So what makes the good soil good is what they do with the Word of God. The lamp is not to be hidden. It means that we must take the message of Christ to the world. Now, one last thought. Why did Jesus himself tell this particular parable to his disciples? Well, I think uh, it's important to understand that the disciples had followed Jesus for three and a half years. They had certainly come to believe that he was the Messiah and the King. And they saw all these great crowds attracted to Jesus. The masses were following him. They were hailing him as the King. And everything was going on great. All of a sudden, they get to the end. Jesus is crucified. Those who were shouting, Hosanna, 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 are now shouting, Crucify, Crucify, Crucify. The last night, even though the disciples didn't know it was the last night, even the disciples began to flee. Then Jesus dies. What happened? Is it true? You can imagine the disciples getting back together after the resurrection, sitting around trying to remember what's going on and understand what's just taken place. And then they recall this parable. Jesus had explained to them that even though there were masses of people that were following him all along, those masses were not true believers. They're going to fall away once things get difficult, financial or or, or worries of life or persecution and suffering come about. and That's exactly what happened. Now, another thing that's important to, to remember here, even though I said this is going to be the last point a few minutes ago, uh, is to ask the question, why did Mark include this parable in his gospel? And it reminds us, I think, in marks readers of why the fact that many people will not believe, or some will have an apparent belief and receive the gospel of joy, but they won't stick with it. They won't remain in the church. You can imagine the early Christians preaching the gospel and hundreds of people come into the early churches, and then all of a sudden they kind of go down to 50 and 25, and then maybe they build back up and kind of get a small force in that church, and they go off and plant another church. They plant another church, and again, 100 people come to that first Easter service, but then it's quickly down to 25, down to 35. I think Mark included this parable to explain to his readers and and the early Christians, hey, this is what we are to expect. Sometimes the gospel will be received by many, but it won't be believed by all in the long term because they're going to come and not really fully believe in Jesus. But I also think this parable makes sense to the entirety of the New Testament and the church today. As we read through the New Testament, what do we notice? Almost every single one of Paul's letters and the letters of the New Testament is written against false teachers and false believers and against uh, those who are trying to bring in false theology. Some people are going to come into the early church and tell us that it's okay to be prosperous and wealthy and healthy and wise. Uh, that's not a problem. and You don't have to undergo suffering or persecution for Jesus. And Instead, uh, the disciples begin to explain to them, No, the gospel of Jesus is the gospel of making Jesus known. Jesus Christ is Lord, and the world doesn't like that message because they have its own Lord and their own lords. I think this also explains very much for us today what's going on in the church today. The church in the West, and especially in the American church, is full of thousands and thousands of people who come to our congregations on Sunday. But how many of them are actually the good soil? How many of them are actually going out and bearing witness of Jesus, even if that means suffering or opposition, even if that means economic hardships? I think the fact that we don't have economic hardships in the Christian church in the West, especially we even have Christians telling us that it's okay to be prosperous and wealthy and healthy and wise. Um, and the fact that we don't have persecution and suffering means we got all three soils uh, in the middle of our churches. I'm sorry to say it, but I think the best thing that can happen to the Christian church in the West is persecution and tribulation where the church is not well respected in society and culture in terms of the laws of the land. And as a result, that would cause those who are the good soul to actually come to the surface and it would weed things out. Instead, I think the church has been watered down and unfortunately it's been watered down in a bad way. I think the, another inevitable result of that is the fact that we have lots of people in our churches that, that think they're okay. They think they're Christians. They, that they're that they a plant and, and all is going well, but they don't realize that they're actually not bearing fruit. The fruit of preaching the gospel of Jesus and making him known to the nations. I think as a result, the Christian church in the West is in difficult and dangerous times thank you for listening to today's podcast if you would like more information on the determined truth podcast you can find us on itunes you can follow rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com see you next time